You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Hey, if you've got your Bibles, go to Romans chapter 8. That's where we're going to be. I'm going to begin this morning a... um, a three-part study of Romans chapter 8. And so, uh, and to begin, what I'd like to do is I want to read the first 11 verses. And, and here's what I would say. If you've got, um, in the, you know, as, as you think about uh, coming in the next couple of weeks, um, you might dust off your Bible and, and bring it with you. So I know we have the scriptures on the screen a lot, and, um, and we do that by design. But, but I really think, um, so whether it's a physical Bible, electronic Bible, something you can pull up, you'll want to have that because as I talk about Romans 8, I'm going to be talking about several things in Romans, and I think you'll find it helpful to follow along with that as we study what it is that Paul has to say here. And so... With that, let me read Romans chapter 8, uh, 1 through 11. This is the Word of God, inspired through Paul. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Father, I pray that you would speak to us this morning, um, that in your grace, your word would be clear, it would not return void, and that we would be changed. We pray in Jesus' name, and by the power of your Spirit, amen. Well, so as I said, we're going to walk through Romans in uh, three separate weeks, and today what I want to do is I want to lay a foundation And then um, uh, when we come back, 
uh, in two weeks. I'm going to take two weeks, and I'm going to build on this foundation. And so, uh, don't, I, I didn't get nearly as far as I thought I might um, in the first hour, but we'll see uh, how far we get this hour. So here, here's, let me tell you a couple things about uh, Romans chapter 8. So Romans is uh, called by many, I mean, throughout the centuries, Romans is sort of viewed as the Mount Everest of the Bible. And so when you, uh, when you read Romans, um, it, is, it is a theological uh, masterpiece that Paul writes to the church in Rome. And uh, it, it has been said that you can uh, preach, if you go you know, from the very beginning of Romans 1 to Romans chapter 16, all the way to the end, that you can, you can preach the entire Bible from Romans. Romans doesn't, doesn't cover everything that the Bible covers, but it intersects with it. And that it is in many ways this theological treatise that is the, um, a great summation of all that God has been saying from the beginning of Genesis through the end of Revelation. And um, so if Romans is the Mount Everest then Romans chapter 8 is um, the top of that mountain. It is the high altitude of what God has to say to His people. One ancient writer, he said it this way. He said, if the Bible were a ring and Romans its precious stone, chapter 8 would be the sparkling point of the jewel. So Romans 8, and in your Bible, it is the chapter in your Bible on the Holy Spirit. Now, John chapter 14 through 16, that rivals it most certainly. And we find out um, incredibly helpful information about the person of the Holy Spirit. But, but, but word for word and chapter for chapter, Romans chapter 8 is the uh, most instructive chapter in all of the Bible for us about the work of the Holy Spirit, the Nineteen times we'll see that he is mentioned in this chapter. I want you to look. So at the very beginning of the chapter, uh, verse 1, it begins with a declaration that there is therefore now no condemnation. Uh, the chapter ends in verse 39 with the declaration that there is no separation from the love of God. No condemnation, no separation. And it's been said that the verses in between guarantee that there is no defeat in the meantime. The, the chapter, you can think about it this way, it spans the, 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 the whole of the Christian life. Uh, begins with justification, and then there's sanctification. And then Paul speaks about our adoption by God in Christ. And then it moves to the preparation for our glorification. In fact, what I think Paul is doing is that he is taking 39 verses to argue, um, to convince us of the most central truth of the Bible. And that's verses 38 and 39. This is what it says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, 
nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if Romans is the Everest and chapter 8 is the top of the Everest, this is the summit. This is the high peak of the message of God's Word. His enduring, unfailing, faithful love for you. And so Paul is going to begin in verse 1 to logically, or maybe better to say it, theologically argue to that point. And he's going to take us step by step, as he does throughout Romans, step by step by step, to lead us to a place where we are absolutely convinced of God's love for us. The, the argument goes like this, okay? That the Holy Spirit works towards the end goals. So the Holy Spirit's working toward an end goal, and that end goal is this. It is glorifying God in your life by convincing you and showing you that nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ if you're a believer. So nothing separates us from the love of God in Christ. And then here's how the argument goes. Because, verses 1 through 4, because the Spirit unites us to what Jesus has done, so there's no condemnation. And then in verses 5 through 13, that not only does the Spirit unite us, but the Spirit is sanctifying us, the Spirit is, is changing us. And then picking up in verse 14, the Spirit witnesses to us the intimacy we have with God as His children, the reality of our adoption. In the beginning in verse 18 to about verse 30, he's, the Spirit prepares us for the glory to come, for our glorification. And all of this so that we will live in and live out of God's unfailing love. Paul is saying, believer, you can't lose God, and He won't lose you. So look with me. Let's begin as he, and walk through Paul's argument. In verse 1, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so I don't want you to miss the therefore. I grew up in a church where the pastor always said every time he came to it, so listen, when you come to a therefore, you need to ask the question, what is it there for? Okay? And it's clever, and it's a good thing to remember as you read through the Bible. Therefore, so don't miss it. So, so when you see therefore, what it is is Paul is calling back to what it is he has previously said, namely chapter 7. And so if chapter 8 is the Mount Everest of the Bible, you might think about it this way. Chapter 7 might very well be the valley of the shadow of death. See, it's been called, chapter 7, Paul's journal or his, or his diary. It's the place, you know, in a diary where you're, where you're dead level honest. It, it, it's why they have locks on diaries, you know. Because you tell your diary what you wouldn't tell anyone else. Well, I grew up with three sisters, and I can tell you those locks don't work very well. <laughs> they, they just only thought they weren't telling anybody else. But here's how it goes. In, in verses, uh, if you've got Romans 7, I'm going to read verses 4 through 6. This is his thesis in chapter 7. 
He says this, um, likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So, as you were born, your natural self, you were born under the law of God, and you were um, uh, held hostage by the law of God. You were in slavery to the law of God. It was the standard that was required, but you could never meet. And so because of that, as a believer, I mean as an unbeliever, as one who has not accepted Christ, you can bear no fruit in your life. So in verse 5 he says, for while we were living in the flesh, and then he defines that for us, our sinful passions, our natural disposition, the whole of our life that comes naturally. That there are no spiritual prodigies. We are all born naturally in the flesh, controlled by the sinful passions, the sinful desires that we have. So, these were aroused by the law. They were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. The law doesn't help us, the law exposes us. But now, he says, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We're no longer under the condemnation of the law. Now, here's how he then unpacks that. In verses 7 through 13, Paul's writing in past tense. He's writing about his life before he became a believer. You know this because he says, you know, uh, verse 9, I was once. You know, before I was a believer, this is what I was. And he, you know, he looked to the law. He looked to the commandments of God. He tried to keep them. He aimed to exceed in in morality. He, you know, to to prove that he was good enough, to, to prove that he was worthy. But he realized his experience, verse 10, he says, the very commandments that promised life proved to be death to me. He, he couldn't live up to him. It's not that the law was bad. In fact, he says, verse listen, the law is holy and it's righteous and it's good. The problem is Paul is not holy and righteous and good. Paul is exceedingly sinful. And so with met, with, met with the law, he experiences that he can never live up to it, and that is the problem. The law revealed, it exposed Paul for who he was. So then in verse 14, and this is fascinating, I want you to notice this. In verse 14 of chapter 7, Paul switches tenses, and it's no longer past tense, it's present tense. It's no longer life before I was a believer, it's life as a believer. And what Paul is going to describe is this incredibly honest and vulnerable experience. It's it's this radical honesty. But Paul is describing his current life as a believer, his current struggle, his struggle as a believer. He's describing these these two natures struggling for control. The the flesh, his, his old sin nature, the one... He's born with the one that comes so naturally to him, the one, the one that is his natural disposition, and 
life in the Spirit, the, the gift of God's presence within us. And the battle is raging in him. Verse 15, he says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do, what I, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. In verse 17, he says, sin, sin still dwells in me. Verse 18, he says, For I know nothing good dwells in me that is my natural man. And even if, even if there are hints of good, my motive is all wrong. Verse 21, evil lies close at hand. Verse 22 and 23, he says, I delight in God's law. I delight in God's word. I delight in God's holy desires. I have an inner being, the inner man, the new man, longs to love God with his life. But verse 24, here's his cry. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body? Of death. Verse 25, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now we're going to unpack this more in a minute, but I want you to see this is the struggle. And let me ask you, who hasn't felt that way? I mean, it's a refreshing honesty from Paul. I mean, I, I think sometimes we can think of the church as this place where, man, we've got to come and have it all together. Man, we've got to have that old man. We've got to have him licked and, and locked in the cage. And, um, you know, uh, we can't bring that in here. Man, we need to be riding high, sailing, sailing smooth in the power of the Spirit. So, so we say things like, how, how are you doing? And we say, oh, man, I'm doing, I'm doing great. You, you didn't talk to my wife, did you? No, no, I'm, I'm doing great. We're doing great. Really? Okay. I mean, I get it. We have a minute. You know, we're trying all to get coffee and trying to make sure we don't get the decaf and, uh, you know. But, I mean, what are honesty to say, you know what? I am a believer and I am struggling and the old man seems to be winning today and I, I don't want that. I, I long for the holy desires of God in my life. But man, naturally, my disposition is waging war against my new life in Christ. Now, Paul's past, verses 7 through 13 in chapter 7, you might title that the battle we can't win. You can't win that battle. But this, 14 through 25, the struggle as a believer, you can win this battle. Now, before we go any further, you're going to say, okay, great. I can't wait to hear that. Just tell me what to do because um, I'm ready. I'm ready to, ready to make my list. And it's not, it's not as simple as that, and it's far simpler than you can imagine, but we're not getting to it today. Okay. Well, I'm taking three weeks through this. Paul takes 39 verses. I'm going to take three weeks, and we're going to get to it. But he says this. He says, listen, there's no condemnation. Therefore, so because of all that, based upon all that, this experience, this I've written in my diary, this struggle I'm experiencing, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Paul provides this assurance. 
right up front, this, this assurance, right at the beginning. And it, uh, uh, when my oldest daughter, Maggie, um, a couple of years ago, she was in a really bad wreck. And it was a Wednesday night, and we got a call from a woman who had her phone on the side of the road who was sitting with her while she was still stuck in the car. And, and, and I so appreciate it because the woman began by saying, Look, I just want to tell you, your daughter's going to be fine. And then began to tell us the news. And, and it's like, here's the assurance right up front. And this is what Paul's going to do. So condemnation, it, it, it's this Greek word. I don't do this very often. It's katakrima, okay? So kata means against. Krima means judgment. So it's the verdict of guilty. It, it's to rule against the defendant. It, it's, to, it's to rule somebody is liable to punishment. And so therefore, when you become a Christian, what Paul is saying, as a believer in Christ, as a Christian, you're not condemned. There's no more punishment. The punishment has been taken away. God has forgiven you. And that's a wonderful thing. Of course, it's a wonderful thing. But it's more wonderful than I think we really consider. It doesn't just say you're not condemned. It actually says it much stronger than that. There, now there is no condemnation. I want to tell you why that's stronger. So no condemnation for the believer. There's no condemnation. Not now for the believer. Not ever for the believer. Our standing, it's not, it's not as though our standing with God has just been improved. Our standing has been totally transformed. Jesus was condemned. That's what he's going to say. Jesus took the condemnation so that you can live a life of no condemnation, a no condemnation life. In fact, uh, Romans chapter 5 begins the very same way. It just states it in the positive. It says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. No condemnation means you have been justified. You have been declared right with God. And here's Paul's thread through Romans 8 on this. Verse 1, there's no condemnation. Verse 3, because our sin was condemned in Christ. He became the curse, to use Galatians' language. Verse 33 then says, so no one can accuse us because God has justified us. And then verse 34, no one can condemn us because Christ was raised and is seated at God's right hand and is making intercession for us. And then 35 to 39 So nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He gave up the life of His Son for us. God is all in. Now listen, so so most of us, this is, so you may say, yeah, I know all that, Ross, man, we we talk about that. So I say, yes, most of us, um, maybe we intellectually know this. So we would even say, listen, at the moment we have trusted Christ, I mean, we, we experienced, we, we, uh, we, we received and we experienced that, that your sins are pardoned, you, you're forgiven. But then, so you move out of that, you know, that space and that time and, and into life, and, and we think, okay, well, so this is a great gift, so I've got to pay, I need to pay this back, and so I'll, I'll live better so that I can pay God back. And then you fall back into sin, and then you think, oh, well, I, I'm condemned all over again. 
And then, you know, you go ask for forgiveness, and then you're, and then you're not condemned, and then, and then you feel great, and then you go out again and you sin, and then you become condemned, and we move in and out of this condemn, condemnment all the, all the time. And Tim Keller calls it a daisy theology, you know. He loves me. He loves me not. I mean, I did really good today. I mean, I didn't get up quite as early as I wanted to, um, but since I slept till 11 o'clock, that let took me out of all the possibility of sinning between, you know, 7 and 11. <laughs> then I had lunch, and I played some video games, and I didn't talk to anybody, so I didn't say anything. You know, so you go through your list, and you go, you know what? I had a pretty good day. God, God's very happy with that. I mean, there's a few things here and there I could work on, you know, like my life, but anyways. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't do drugs or cuss anybody out, so it was pretty good. But at the end of a bad day, you hang your head. You think, oh, you got so disappointed in me. You feel his condemnation. Except here's the thing. There is no condemnation. He doesn't condemn you. When Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation, he means it. He doesn't mean there's no condemnation now. He does mean that. But he also means, you're, listen, there's no condemnation anymore, ever. That's the Christian life. That's the gospel that provides something far greater for us than just the momentary forgiveness of sins. It is the, it is the forever forgiveness of sins, the forever no condemnation. So then you ask, okay, well, well, what about, what about sin in my life? Well, John, 1 John 1, 9. So hang with me for just a second. I know it's like you think I'm having a theological nerd fest up here, and you're right, I am. I'm trying to throw in an illustration here and there for you, but, but this is important. Think about this for a second. 1 John 1, 9. If you don't have this memorized, write this down. Say, I, you know, I want to memorize this first because it's important. Because John will write there, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, so when you sin, the Holy Spirit, part of the job of the Holy Spirit is to convict you of your sin if you're a believer. Listen, the Holy Spirit's not going to let you just live in that for very long, and you'll be convicted. And when you're convicted, then you, you say, oh, no, oh, no I didn't, I, I, this, I, and, you, and you cry out, you pray, and it's a confession to God. And John says, when you do that, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now, we operate, though, as though he's faithful and merciful to forgive us our sins. So follow me here. That's not what John says. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That is not to say God's not merciful. He's abounding in mercy. Absolutely. But his forgiveness of our sins is not based on his mercy. It is based on his justice. And here's the reason why. We, we talked about it just a second ago. In verse 34 of, eight, of chapter 8, Jesus is raised from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he is there as our advocate. 
it says he's making intercession, which he is saying, listen, do you sin? You go to prayer to the Father to seek forgiveness of sin? And Jesus says, Dad, I paid for that. I was condemned for that sin. I was condemned for him, for her. They're mine. And so it is right and it is just to forgive them. Because you can't pay for the same sin twice and I already paid for it. And so God is faithful and He's just to forgive us our sins. Listen, it's not as though when you sin, you're kicked out of the family and you go to confess your sin to try to get back into the family. And, and thankfully, as a parent, I've come to understand this more and more. Listen, I have three kids. And, and sometimes it has happened that they do something to defy me or rebel against me or do something crazy or say something crazy or hurtful. Or, yeah. But it is not as though when they do that, I go, oh, I see, I see how you are. You, you, uh, you openly defied me? Huh. You rebelled against me? You, you hurt my feelings? <laughs> You're out. I have two kids now. <laughs> and then they have to come back to the front door and beg for my mercy for them to bring them back in the family. That's not what we're doing. We're not asking to be back into the family. We don't, it's not like I write my kids out of the will, you know, my vast estate. And... The only thing I have great value is like my blue chair, you know, and you, I don't think you could give that away at a garage sale. Um, no, that's not what we're doing. When we come to confess our sins and He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, it is, it is restoration of fellowship. It is, it is the restoring of fellowship with the Father. Jesus is there making intercession. That's why the key to verse 1 is that in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. This is the reason there's no condemnation. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Paul writes to the Corinthians there, he says, listen, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. And then he says this, listen. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Christ is in you. I mean, let, let the weight of that sit on you for a second. Christ is in you. You are in Christ. This is the theology of union with Christ. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ comes and dwells in us. And there is this Trinitarian relationship that we are caught up in. We are in God, in Christ, by the Spirit, and God is in us, indwelling us. We are different because of this. 
You and Christ, and Christ in you, Sinclair Ferguson says it this way. Listen, I know some of you are thinking, yeah, I know I heard that. I don't, I don't know if I believe that. Hundreds and hundreds of times in the New Testament, Paul will speak about us being in Christ. In fact, that's the way he talks about being a Christian, is being in Christ, Christ in you. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, having the Spirit is nothing less than the equivalent, the equal to, indeed the very mode of having the incarnate, obedient, crucified, resurrected, and exalted Christ indwelling us so that we are united to Him as He is united to the Father. See John 17. I'll say so much more about this in the weeks to come, but I'm going to just leave it there right now for time's sake. Okay, there's no condemnation for you, verse 1, because, verse 3, the... the There's condemnation for sin. There is that. Jesus did not come to condemn sinners. He came to condemn sin. In in fact, He came to be condemned for sin. And so what this does, so this is accomplished by the work of Jesus on the cross. Now, we talk about the cross here at Bethel, but I want us to stop and pause for a second. This isn't just Christian lingo. It's not just Christian words that we're saying. The heart of the gospel is here. The cross is... Listen, it shapes our lives. The, the cross casts a shadow of grace over every aspect of our life. What it means to be a Christian is not that you're becoming more nice, that you're becoming more moral, that you're exceed, succeeding at your self-improvement project. What it means to be a Christian is that you have your life completely upended, completely overturned, completely wrecked completely reshaped, to to use Paul's language, that that you've come to the place of death so that you can finally begin to live. Now think about this. Why the cross? Let's think one second. Why the cross? Why the cross? I mean, Jesus, He didn't just die. He died a brutal, humiliating, degrading, hateful execution on a cross. The cross was not just a way to put someone to death. The Roman cross was designed to utterly humiliate and degrade the one being put to death. Why the cross? So we look at the cross and it, it tells us two things. And this is what he's going to say in the next two verses. When I consider the cross, this is verse 2, I am struck by the fact there is something seriously wrong with me. I am fractured. I am broken beyond repair. In fact, something more seriously wrong with me than I could have ever imagined, or else it wouldn't have taken the death of the Son of God to deal with it. And secondly, and this is verses 3 and 4, When I consider the cross, I am struck by the fact that there is something profoundly valuable about me. Something profoundly treasured about me. 
Verse 2, something is seriously wrong. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death, and he used it in, in the end of, their, of chapter 7. Think of it as a principle. So, so the law there is not necessarily a code of conduct specifically. He's not talking about God's law specifically. But what he's saying is, you know, when he says in chapter 7, when I, when, when I most want to do good, evil lies at hand. When I most want to do the right thing, I find the law of sin at work in me. He's talking about this, this principle, a, a principle of radical self-centeredness, a principle of radical evil in his nature, in our nature. It is our natural disposition. It is our bent. That's how we came into the world. So I'm going to cut to the chase here, what Paul's saying. Remember, it's the answer to the anguish of chapter 7. What, what hope is there? Wretched man that I am. Here's the hope. You've been set free. First, you've been set free from the power of the sin and death that so naturally comes to you. You've been set free from, let's say it this way, you've been set free from the old self, from the old nature, your sin nature, your natural disposition, your natural... You've been set free from the power of that. Now, you've not been set free from the presence of it, but from the power. So the old man, listen, the old man is the old man is the old man. And as long as you remain in this life, the presence of the old man is still there. And listen, here's another thing you need to know. The old man is just as sinful and just as depraved and just as rebellious as it was when you were an unbeliever. The old man never gets better. The old man doesn't improve. You have been made new. You are a new creation. Listen, Paul will say, the old is gone, the new has come. Well, wait a minute, how can Paul say that? Well, he's saying it because it's already true. And it's not yet completed. It's already. The old is gone, the new has come, but it's not yet. Positionally, it's a reality. Positionally, as God sees you, He looks through the beauty of His Son, Jesus, and He sees you, believer. And experientially, though, we feel the struggle. The Spirit of God who desires the things of God. And we set our mind on the Spirit so that we desire the things of God. And yet we find this, this struggle at work, our natural disposition, that which comes so naturally to us, waging war against us. John Bunyan. Oh, John Bunyan you know, wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He says it this way, and I'm going to edit it because there's kids in the room. But here's what he said, all right? So you get, you, you get me here, all right? It says, that old man was drowned in the waters of baptism. But that donkey sure can swim. He was drowned to death in the waters of baptism. Romans 6, 1, 2, 3, 4. But man, he sure can swim. Here's what, here's what Paul says, and then I'm almost, I'm really close here, all right? He's got nine more verses, all right? 
Just kidding. I ran out of time first hour. All right, so here's, so here's listen, he's setting us up for what, what, can we, what, what can we actually do, okay? Um, and here's the thing. He's going to argue that the Spirit of God, this is, this is what the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God comes along as we are freed from the law of sin and death in two ways. Verse 13 says, you live according to the sinful nature, you'll die. But if by the Spirit, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. That's verse 13. So the first thing is, uh, you know, so remember, the cross tells us two things. I've got a problem that's, that's greater than I imagined. And I'm treasured more than I can fathom. And the Spirit comes into our lives to show us these two things, to apply these two things. So we see, listen, Jesus died for me. Therefore, there's something, there had to be something seriously wrong. And Jesus died for me. I am incredibly treasured by God. More incredibly, profoundly, ultimately than I could have ever imagined. The Spirit of God comes to put death to death the sinful nature. And in verse 15, he says, the Spirit of God comes so that the Spirit of God uh, is the Spirit of sonship, and we cry to Him, Abba, Father. We, we come to Him and we say, Daddy, to God. Spirit does both those things. If you really have the Holy Spirit in your life, He's doing both. He's putting to death the deeds of the sinful nature, and by the Spirit you're enabled to see God's love for you. Now look at this, verses 3 and 4. You're, something is profoundly valuable, profoundly treasured. For what, God is, for, for what God has done with the law, we can by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin in Jesus in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This treasure shows up in God's love for us and God's glory. What is value? What is how, how, You could define it this way. What somebody's willing to pay for it. God's price to adopt us as sons. And I'll argue in a couple of weeks why we want to keep that as sons, and not necessarily sons and daughters, but if you need to say that. God's price to adopt us as sons was the death of His Son, Jesus. Old Archbishop William Temple said, Who's qualified to tell how much you're worth? Who's qualified to tell us what a human being's worth? Here's the answer. My worth is that I am worth to God. And this is a marvelously great truth. For Jesus died for me. Do you hear that? Look what he was willing to pay to get you. First Peter puts it this way. You were bought. You were redeemed. Not by corruptible things like silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on. And unpacks all these things for the next few verses. We'll, we'll pick it back up. But here's how I want to end. Listen, either Jesus has justified you, or you're looking to something else, someone else, to justify you. We are all born with a need to be justified, 
to, to be something, to be valued, to be loved, to be justified, to be told, hey, we're okay. And that other thing can never justify you. It can only imprison you. It can only hold you hostage. Here's some examples. Maybe it's your job. You're seeking your job to justify you, your career. If you could just get ahead, if you could just just make that promotion, if you could just do that deal, if you could just be that important, if you could just be the best in your industry, then, man, you'd be something. You'll know you're not a bum, like Rocky told Adrian. Jobs are fickle things. That'll hold you hostage. That'll ensure you're a workaholic. That'll ensure you live in fear and security. And what about your spouse? That's why I got married. So I could be loved, cared for. I could be the most important person in somebody's life, but what if you're not? What if you're not? It's a terrible savior. What about your kids? You know, bring kids into the world. They'll love me and they'll be great. They're gonna they're gonna they're gonna be the best in their class and they're and everybody will know what a great parent I am. But what if they're not? You'll ruin your kids if you need them to be your savior. Or money. How much does it take? How much does it take to be justified? Enough that you can walk in anywhere, do anything you want, or just a little more? We all have a natural disposition. We all have that natural bent. Do you know what yours is? Do you know what competes in your life? What wages war against you for the place of Jesus being the one that justifies you. Why do you do what you do? What's underneath that? If you don't know, I'd say you don't know yourself very well. And the very best way to know yourself is to pick up God's Word and to begin reading it. This living Word reads you back. It's the mirror of the beauty and perfection and glory of God. And as you look into it, you say, oh... Oh, that's who, that's who I am. And we confess it and we continue to yield to God's Spirit what He's doing. Now listen, I haven't answered all the questions. I've probably raised a bunch of questions. Good. We'll do that over the next couple of weeks. Let me encourage you, read. Read Romans. If all you've got time for is to read Romans 8, read Romans 8. If you've got more time, read Romans 7 and Romans 8. If you're really good and want to gain extra points with God, read all of Romans. And then you'll come back and go, hey, listen, that's not, that's not right. Spend some time in God's Word this week. Find yourself drawn to the cross. Remember, the desperation that you live with. Revisit again the treasure that you are.
to the God that loves you. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray this morning. I know there are people in here this morning that...